Welcome back to the Anglo Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. We've entered a period of this desperate conflict where the body count begins to mount and the British begin having serious doubts about both their leadership and their strategy. Remember, it's late November 1899, and in Kimberley, thousands of civilians and soldiers are awaiting the lifting of the siege. In London, there's still an expectation that this vexatious war will be over in a few weeks. How wrong? Cecil John Rhodes is cabling London complaining, and Lieutenant General Lord Methuen, commander of the British force in the Cape, which has just crossed the Orange River and is less than 100 kilometres away, is trying to reach the diamond mining capital of the world. Methuen wants to repeat the British pattern in this war, to march directly to a strong point without careful reconnaissance. This blind and slavish adherence to British Orthodox training would not end soon enough, unfortunately, for thousands more British soldiers. The Battle of Moda River, a tributary of the Orange River, was to take place after two other skirmishes, which are called soldiers' battles. These were bloody affairs, where men died in droves, but the tactical importance of the incidents are not regarded as campaign-shifting. The battles of Belmont and Graspan, or Roy Flactus, as the Boers called it. And these two soldiers' battles repeated what the British army had discovered across the country in Natal. The British would seize a position and believe they'd won a victory, only to see their enemy leaving the area in large numbers, taking important cannon with them. Methuen wrote, I want to put the fear of God into these people. He was tall, bony, and slightly stooped. His short nose, solid chin, and thick moustache were the same reddish colouring as his hair. He was to face a place called Reulachtus, or Red Lowlands, in a short while. There were only a few thousand Boer between Methuen and Kimberley. These Boers were waiting for General Cronier to arrive with a larger force from the northwest, from Mafeking. General Martinez Prinsloo was in command of the Boers waiting for Methuen and his orders were to delay the British as long as possible. So they watched as the British troops marched and followed their train northwards until the British arrived at the station of Belmont. This was the first major obstacle that Methuen faced. Belmont was a siding 40 kilometers north of the Orange River. The railway line passed through low hills which were located east of the track, and despite his poor reconnaissance, the general knew Boers were on the ridge. There were two peaks separated by a narrow pass, or what is known in South Africa as a neck, or a saddle. 2,000 free staters were led by Jakobus Prinsloo and were from Kroenstad, Foreesmith, Bloemfontein, Brantford and Jakobstal, while 800 other men were from the Transvaal, led by Kurs de la Rey, who arrived only at the end of the coming soldiers' battle. Methuen may have known the Boers were there, but then he based his plan of attack on a complete misunderstanding of the geography of the two hills, believing they were linked by a flat top, similar to what Simons had done in Natal a few weeks before at the Battle of Talana Hill near Dundee. The British then gave these hills the names of Table Mountain and Gun Hill, which is a misnomer because they're tiny in comparison to both these visual features of Cape Town. I suppose looking up from the dusty flat plains to these hills accentuated their size. Methuen thought the ground between the hills was high, but as we know it wasn't. He then based his entire plan on that preconception with unfortunate results. The 9th Brigade were to attack what they called Table Mountain and the Guards Brigade to launch an attack on Gun Hill. 
The flourish, then, was the Coldstream Guards who'd stormed the non-existent high ground between the two. The 9th Brigade would then fight through the northern flank of the Boer positions nearby at another hill they also hilariously called Mont Blanc. As usual, the British troops would be forced to march into position during the night. Not a good idea. At first light, the poor British troops had crept into position, but were almost a kilometre short of where they should have been. They were not good at estimating distances in the vast African spaces during the day, and at night, they were worse. So the troops would have to dash across open ground, which they did at 3.30 in the morning. By 4.20, they'd reached the top of both Table Mountain and Gun Hill, but with significant losses. The Boers held their ground on the top of Table Mountain, but now some of the troops realized uh, that the big problem with the large hill nearby, Mont Blanc, was the 9th Brigade was supposed to charge up Mont Blanc, and they discovered they were in the wrong place. They faced the steepest part of the mountain. The Coldstream guards now knew there was no high ground between the two and actually rushed up the south side of Mont Blanc with the Northamptons and Grenadiers in tow, thinking on their feet, luckily for Methuen, and that's why this was called a soldier's battle. It was at that point, at the dawn, that the Boers withdrew, having bloodied the British forces and rode north towards Kimberley. Methuen, like his colleagues earlier in Natal, could do nothing but watch his enemy ride away, as he'd no cavalry. Remington's Tigers, the English-speaking home irregular force, then tried to attack the disappearing Boers, but at that point a new commander under Cours de la Rey arrived and put the Tigers to flight instead. So 74 British died, 220 were wounded, only 12 Boers killed, 40 prisoners taken. Methuen had appeared dull and unimaginative, but had been saved by his men. It was, though, an ominous beginning to the relief of Kimberley. The Battle of Belmont on the 23rd of November 1899 was followed up the next day, the 24th, when Lord Methuen found himself once again under fire from Boers on copies east or on their right of the railway line. There were reportedly a rearguard group of 400 Boers, so Methuen sent his naval brigade to lead the attack. The main problem at this point was there weren't 400 Boers, there were 2,000, led by the enigmatic and aggressive Cours de la Rey, with his Transvaal contingent. The Free State commander, Prinsloer, had wanted to ride away, but de la Rey asked him to join in the defence, and he did so, albeit grudgingly. They formed up on the hills two miles long, and thus began the next waste of British lives. It's known as the Battle of Graspan, although the Boers called it Roilachte, Red Flats, and this perhaps is more apt considering the blood that would be shed, and symbolic, as it was also the colour of Methuen's moustache. Once again, the British officers' utter misunderstanding of modern warfare shone through. The Naval Brigade had experienced very little open training and tended to bunch together, while their leaders, the naval officers, loved carrying their swords and they left insignia on their lapels. The Boer sharpshooters had a field day. The terrible truth is that there, the Naval Brigade lost virtually their entire officer corps in that battle. The British were saved from even worse casualty figures by the Boers who had yet to realise that the Mauser worked best when fired from flat ground at the enemy as the bullet exited the barrel at extremely high velocity. 
That meant you could hit more than one man with one bullet if you fired in line with the troops, or if you missed your target, maybe you'd hit someone behind. And the Boers now were firing downhill, so much of their firepower was dissipated. The marines and sailors of the naval brigade supported by the North Lancashires attacked in the first wave of around 330 men and got to 600 metres from the base of the hill before the Boers opened fire. Another small group of Boers were on their left, so these British were caught in a crossfire. Again, by the time the British had made their way to the top of the hill, helped by the skill of their artillery, in this case the Boers had gone. And once again, Methuen watched them through his telescope, muttering, he didn't have cavalry. The skirmish at Hraspan or Roilachte had been costly. The British Marines lost 11 dead, 73 wounded, which was actually 44% of that entire detachment. In total, the British lost 283 men to the Boers, 21. But for the Boers, they had a problem. They had lost their leader, Prinzler, who was thought of as too passive. He was fired and replaced by Piet Coronier, but the man who really wanted the job was the troublemaker Coeur de la Rey. Songs are still sung about this Boer leader to this day, and his name inspires both love and loathing, depending on your position on the Boer War. Suffice to say, he was an aggressive leader of men who could push things further than most, and was followed by his troops into many a coming battle for the next three years. He is the epitome of Boer nationalism, which morphed, unfortunately, into Afrikaner nationalism and the, and the 21st century remains an inspiration for good and for bad. He travelled about with a small Bible in his hands. Um Kuis was his name, Uncle Kuis. He was a man of formidable looks, a long, neatly trimmed beard, and now at 52, his aquiline nose gave him a patriarchal appearance. He didn't say much, but when he spoke, everyone listened. He's famous for a number of short speeches, but this one in particular resonated and is still quoted. The Afrikaners have been chased from one land to another, but in all those lands graves were dug for British soldiers. As England's case is unjust, time will bring her to a fall. Before that, we have land enough to go on burying British soldiers. But the other major change was in Methuen, who now thought that the Boers were on the run. He did what his colleagues had done in Natal, and he didn't understand that they were luring him into a mental trap, and like a hungry bear approaching meat loaded with poison, he was hurrying to Kimberley, where Cecil John Rhodes of De Beers Mining Company bleated like a soft white sheep. Coeur de la Rey had thought long and hard about the previous two battles, and the Boer general realised the significance of a Mauser fired straight at a group of approaching men. He also knew that the British artillery were very good at aiming at the top of hills. The copies had clear areas upon which they could take a bead, whereas if his men dug trenches far lower at the approach to the copies, they'd be able to avoid the artillery and, more importantly, hit more than one man with one shot of their Mauser bolt-action smokeless rifles. Plus, the English artillery would be hard-pressed to miss their own men while pummeling his if they were forced to fire flat. 
So the Boers began to dig into the banks of the Moda or Muddy River, further north on the railway line to Kimberley, and like a fly, Methuen plodded along the railway into the trap. General Piet Cronier, who was technically in charge, knew a good plan when he heard one, and Coeur de la Rey had a good plan, so backed his mercurial subordinate. The Boers exploited the approaches of both the Moda River and the nearby smaller tributary called the Riet or Reed River. The two rivers, the Moda and Riet, formed a natural line of defence and the banks were up to 30 feet deep. The Boers had dynamited the railway bridge, which meant Methuen had few options at this point. The Boers had six cannon or field guns and one pom-pom, which literally went pom-pom-pom-pom as it fired an explosive round automatically like a machine gun. The other clever move by the Boers was to create gun emplacements at various points so that they could move these high-powered weapons back and forth wherever they were required and hidden from view. Marching stolidly towards this fortified zone was Methuen's force. Two infantry brigades, including the Guards Brigade under Major General Henry Edward Colville and the 9th Brigade under Major General Reginald Paul Carew. Joining them were two mounted regiments, three batteries of field artillery and four guns from what was left of the Naval Brigade. Behind them were reinforcements steaming up the railway line but too far away to help. Remington's Tigers and a small British cavalry unit, the 9th Lancers, then scouted ahead, but they failed to spot Delaray's trenches, a fatal error. They also failed to spot Delaray's stones that he'd had painted white so that his men could count off the distance as range markers. The Boers had also placed biscuit tins as part of the distance marking zones, so it's even more extraordinary that the scouts spotted nothing. Methuen issued the order for his army to cross the Modo River, and on the 28th of November, at 4.30 in the morning, they duly began to tramp northwards uh, along towards this muddy stream, and hopefully to cross. Unfortunately, waiting were 2,000 Boers, and Coeur de la Rey, lying on the south side of the Modo River, near his two sons, Adrian, who was 19, and Coeur Jr., who was only 16. About a kilometre from the river, Methuen turned to Colville and said, They're not here. And Colville remarked, They're sitting uncommonly tight if they are, sir. It was at this point that the Boers opened fire, and the British threw themselves flat on the felt. The firing was to last hours, and Julian Rolfe, the war correspondent, wrote, It was like the perpetual sound of frying of fat like the ripping of air, like the tearing of some part of nature. It was hell's vomit. The British artillery moved up and began to shell the buildings near the station, where, of course, the Boers were not. The Coldstream guards then tried to outflank the Boers on the left, but couldn't get across the Reet River. At the same time, De La Rey's artillery moved from position to position to position, giving the effect of a large force and keeping the British pinned down. And thus... It lasted all day. A stalemate, as some have written. But it was more than that. It was the British infantry lying flat on their stomachs in open felt, with the temperature climbed well above 35 degrees centigrade, safe from bullets, but many falling prey to heat stroke. In one of the terrible small facts of this war, British soldiers were shot in the buttocks or heels as they lay, 
with only these two parts exposed to Boer Mauser's. Methuen leapt onto his horse and rode about, trying to convince his men to move. He, of course, was shot and wounded in his thigh as he did so. Around midday, Paul Carew's 9th Brigade crept forward and crossed the Riet, then attacked the Boer right flank at Rosemead Drift. But at that moment, British field artillery noticed the action and opened fire on these attackers. In other words, shelled their own men. That wasn't the first time in this war that that had happened. The sun set, and with that, the Boers withdrew. Methuen was only slightly wounded. So too was De La Rey, who had actually been hit in the shoulder with a piece of shrapnel, but wasn't seriously hurt. Methuen said afterwards that the fight had been one of the most difficult in the annals of the British army. He surely was exaggerating, but you can imagine his pain. The British lost 480 men, the Boers 80. So saying that the British had won this clash is superficial, to say the least. The action was so shocking to their British system that instead of pushing on immediately to Kimberley, which was only a few days' march, they stopped dead in their tracks for ten days waiting for reinforcements. While the Boers had not suffered many casualties, one important death was noted, that of Adrian, the eldest son of Kurs de la Rey, who had been hit in the stomach by shrapnel from a British artillery round. The Battle of Modo River was the first major setback suffered by Lord Methuen during the first attempt to relieve the siege of Kimberley. Technically, it was a British victory, but achieved at such great cost and with no credit to Methuen. He was also shaken by the mortal wounding of his chief staff officer, who was a personal friend and was dying in the field hospital. Methuen lay near him as he breathed his last. Lord Methuen, nursing his wound, then decided that the Boers were done for. He was going to march directly onto Kimberley. He had yet to experience Marchesfontein, the large ridge which he had originally believed was going to be his first major battle in the campaign. That lay ahead like the low brow of a malevolent giant. As he and his men licked their wounds, it left them time to consider the effect. To the north, Delaray sat close to his son's body, and told his Boer colleagues that they should stay at the ridge and fight. But Cronier knew they had to withdraw back to Jakobstal and the hills south of Kimberley. Delaray had a small breakdown and verbally attacked Cronier, accusing him of running away. Cronier ignored the grieving father and withdrew anyway. Kurs Delaray then left his command and rode off. He needed time to grieve alone in the felt. His son was dead. His war to the death had begun, and his mythology in the cultural history of the Africana was born. So we'll end here for this week, and in our next podcast, episode 11, we'll hear about the terrible Battle of Marcus Fontaine, which is on the main railway line between Cape Town and Kimberley, where Methuen once again underestimated a foe who is far more wily than any other he'd ever known. Join me, Des Latham. And until then, please rate the Anglo-Boer War on iTunes so we get people interested in this incredible African story. You can also direct message me on Twitter, at Des Latham.